Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Desire the unadulterated milk of the word that you may grow thereby. For God has given to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Before we open God's word together this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we're so thankful that we have your word, that we recognize that without your word, we would just be left to our own devices to try to figure out the ultimate realities of the universe. We would be left on our own to just guess and speculate and never give any kind of certainty. And you, through the Holy Spirit, have revealed absolute truth to us, given us the insight and the understanding and knowledge that we need in order to know who you are, to know who we are, to understand that the basic problem between us is sin and that you have provided the perfect, sufficient solution through giving your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins and provide eternal life for us through faith in him alone. Father, we pray that as we study today about God the Holy Spirit, we pray that you would help us to understand what the Scripture teaches as it impacts our very own day-to-day spiritual life Some of the things have been confused. Some things have not been understood clearly or taught clearly. So, Father, we pray for clarity and insight today from God the Holy Spirit who indwells us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we are continuing our study on the ministries of God the Holy Spirit today. Uh, We have come to this through our study in Ephesians where we come to the uh, place in Ephesians chapter 4 where the Scripture is talking about uh, the role of God the Holy Spirit and that we are as believers uh, to maintain, to work diligently, not to create, but to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then in verse 4, we're told there's one body and one spirit, just as we were called in one hope of our calling. So we're looking at these ministries of God the Holy Spirit today. And last week, we talked about being filled by means of the Spirit. The last couple of weeks, we've addressed this because there is a lack of clarity. And And the reason for this is primarily historically because the Greek terms are consistently the same in many, in most passages, but the, but the way certain prepositions are translated are different. And so it creates confusion for English readers when in one place it says by the Spirit or another place it says with the Spirit. And so we think that one is talking about one thing and the other is talking about something else, but the underlying Greek text is saying basically the same thing. So this is what we're talking about. So we've talked about walking by the Spirit. Uh, Last time I talked about Colossians 3.16, that we are to be filled with the rich, rich, we're to let the riches 
of God's word dwell richly within us. We let the word of Christ richly dwell within us. And so I've had several questions this week as people are just struggling with some clarification. So I want to bring that into perspective and kind of tie it together with some other passages because fundamentally I'm not teaching you anything differently than what I've taught for the last 20 years or, for, or what you learned uh, somewhere else perhaps, but I'm tightening it, I'm refining it, I'm putting it into clearer focus than what it has been said because I have read so many of the various uh, criticisms that in some cases are justly due because of a lack of precision in studying the Greek. So this is what we're looking at, the ministries of God the Holy Spirit, and today we're going to look at the phrase Jesus used in John 15 that we are to abide in him, and in, Paul uses in Galatians 5.16 that we are to walk by means of the Spirit, and connecting that to what Paul says in Ephesians 5.18, to be filled by means of the Spirit. But first I want to review just a little bit about, as we're talking about the ministries of God the Holy Spirit, I want to address what the Bible teaches about who the Holy Spirit is. When we look at the Scripture, and we start at the very beginning, the first statement that is made about God is in Genesis 1.1. And in Genesis 1.1, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, is there anything else that God could have created besides, that's not included in the heavens and the earth? No. That is a, that, that's what they call, as a, as a figure of speech, that's what's called a merism when you use two opposites and what you're talking about is a totality of everything. Like you might say, boy, I had such a busy work, work week, I worked day and night. So you have two opposites and what you're talking about is I just worked all the time. And we have different different kinds of uh, figures of speech like that. So heavens and the earth is just the Hebrew way of talking about the entire universe. But they didn't have a single word for universe, so it's just spoken of as the heavens and the earth. But the word that is used in Genesis 1-1 for God is the word Elohim. In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. Now, Elohim in Hebrew is a lot like our English word God. It's somewhat generic. It's not a personal name. It is a general term for, uh, for deity. But the I am at the end of the word Elohim for in Hebrew is a plural. But we don't translate it gods because of passages like this. In Deuteronomy 6.4, we read in the New King James, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. So that Elohim, is, some people refer to it as a plurality of majesty, but the I am ending isn't just uh, saying it's a plural of majesty. It gives evidence that in the oneness of God, there is also a plurality that God is one, yet he is more than one. And so we call this the doctrine of the Trinity, where we have one God, but he has 
three persons, three distinct persons, one in essence, but distinctly three. And it's not that he appears as one or appears as the other or appears as the third, but that there are three distinct persons. And so um, we have to understand that just a, just a little bit. Now, what's interesting about this particular verse is that this is referred to by the Jews as the Shema. This is a central, maybe one of the most important verses in all of Judaism because the first word in the Hebrew is the imperative Shema. Shema'o Israel, Yahweh Elohim, Yahweh Echad. It means hear, O Israel, or listen, pay attention to this, that Yahweh is our Elohim. Yahweh is our God, and he and it's translated in, traditionally as our God is one, Eloheinu Echad, but in the Tanakh, which is the Jewish Publication Society translation that came out in 1986, they recognize that this Hebrew word that is translated one isn't uh, a word that describes a, an indivisible unity but can include a plurality. For example, at the end of Genesis 2, it says that, um, that the, when at marriage, the two become one flesh, echad. There's a different word if it's a singular unity as, a, as opposed to a unity of plurality. And so this is recognized now. Uh, this, this translation that our God is one has been used for about 2,000 years by uh, the Jew Jewish community to refute the uh, idea of the Trinity that's in Christianity. But as I'm going to show you, and I showed you last Tuesday night, that there are numerous verses in the Hebrew Scriptures in the Old Testament that recognize the plurality in, in the Godhead. And that, that's recognized here in the way that the... the um, Jewish Publication Society translated the Tanakh in 1986 because the whole context is against idolatry. And so what, the, what this is really saying is not talking about a strict Unitarian monotheism, but that Yahweh alone is God. And that is, that's a strong, strong indication. Now, in Isaiah 45, 48, 15, and 16, we have God speaking... In verse 15, I, even I, have spoken. Indeed, I have, I have called him, I have brought him, and he will make his way successful. Come near to me, listen to this, from the first I have not spoken in secret. From the time it took place, I was there, and now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. Now, you have to wait to the end of verse 16 to really understand who's talking here. At the end it says, now the Lord God has sent me. So the Lord God is distinct as a person from the me. But the me who is sent is the Messiah, the suffering servant it's described in Isaiah. And, and this is the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ, before he enters into human history and takes adds humanity to his deity. And so it reads, the Lord God, God the Father, has sent me and his spirit. 
So in this verse in Isaiah, and there's several others, you see evidence of three persons of the Trinity. In Isaiah 9-6, which is a tremendous messianic prophecy that was made uh, roughly about uh, roughly about 740, 750 B.C. by Isaiah, which is 750 years before Christ, before the Messiah. He says, for unto us, this whole section, Isaiah 7, 8, 9, is all about the Messiah. For unto us a child is born. He's looking to the future. This is quoted by Matthew when he speaks of the, of the birth of Christ. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. So in those first two lines, you have a child that is born, but a son that is given. The usage of the word, the contrast between son and child, child is one who is being born as an infant, but a son is an already mature one. And so when the Messiah is born, he is taking on humanity, so he's born, but he is also eternal and has always existed in the eternal Godhead of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so the one who is born is also eternally a son, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, which is a term that only is used in Scripture of deity. His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, that should be translated as Father of Eternity, indicating he's eternal, and Prince of Peace. In other words, this this prophecy, along with many others in the Old Testament, are clearly affirming that the Messiah is going to be eternal God and he is going to be uh, true humanity. You have passages like Micah 5.2 that predicts that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem and he's called the one whose goings forth are from everlasting. And yet, how is one who is eternal going to be born? And that's why he is born in Bethlehem. So it describes that process where the eternal God, the eternal second person of the Trinity, enters into human history as a man in order to be able to go to the cross and to die for us. Jesus affirmed the Trinity in Matthew 28, 18, and 19, which is related to um, his commission, it's called the Great Commission, the mission he's given to the to the church. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So again, he's affirming the triunity of God. We see this again in Second Corinthians thirteen fourteen where Paul says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So here he is distinguishing these three persons of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ, and so that emphasis is on grace because grace comes through the Lord Jesus Christ, the free gift of salvation. The love of God God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He died and paid the penalty for our sins, even though we were not worthy of it. We were rebellious, obnoxious sinners. 
And then we have this third phrase, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, emphasizing the distinct roles between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the working out of God's plan for human history. And so we have uh, the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who performs the work of salvation. It is God the Father who is the architect and planner of salvation. And it is God the Holy Spirit who, among other things that he does, including revealing Scripture and the inspiration of Scripture when it was written, is the one who uh, has established the unity of the body of Christ. That's positional fellowship. And the word in the Greek is koinonia, which has the idea of people who are walking together toward a common goal. It's not just social interaction. This last weekend, well, this weekend, it was Friday and Saturday because I had to come home and work on Sunday, uh, I attended a, a reunion up at Camp Penile where I grew up as a child and a teenager and worked on the work crew, did everything you can do that you can do up there. And um, I was a counselor and director, and so they had a reunion for people who had uh, worked and been a counselor, director, whatever, during the 70s. And that was a lot of fun because there was most of us had grown up together at church here in Houston as well as at camp. And then there were a number of those that were just like four or five years younger who were our kids that we had in our cabins when we were counselors. And I usually keep up with a lot of them. It's always fun when somebody comes up to me because I was dressed, I was very relaxed, and they go, you're wearing shorts. I'm just not used to seeing you not in a coat and tie all the time. So uh, it, was, it was great, but we had a lot of, uh, we have a lot of fun together, but it always boils down to conversations that include the, what the Lord's doing in our lives and our spiritual lives, our spiritual growth. That's what biblical fellowship is. It's not just having fun together. When you have fun together with other people, you have conversations, you talk about things, and it's not centered in some sense around what we have in common in Christ. It's not biblical fellowship. It's just having a good time. It's just social interaction. Biblical fellowship is is always in some sense grounded on what binds us, what unites us, and that is our faith in Christ and what Christ has done for us. And this is produced by the Holy Spirit, the fellowship produced by God the Holy Spirit. Now, when our Lord was on the earth, the Jews, the Jewish leadership, and often when we see the word the Jews in the Gospel of John, it's really referring to Judy, the, 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 um, uh, those from the tribe of Judah, that was where um, Judea was, where Jerusalem was located, where Jesus came. And so when it says the Jews sought to kill him, some people have used this as a justification for anti-Semitism, and that's a misunderstanding of how this term was used. He's down in Jerusalem now, and it's the leaders, the religious leaders in Judea that are seeking uh, to kill him. Why? Because he made himself out to be God. And they are rejecting what has been demonstrated to have been true through much of the Old Testament period as the belief in a plurality of God. 
And so Jesus answers them, and he says to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, past tense, I am, present tense. Now that was a loaded answer, because I am is the meaning of the Hebrew word Yahweh, the name of God that God revealed to Moses in Exodus chapter 4 that he says God reveals himself as I am, the eternally existent one. And so when Jesus uses I am in reference to himself, he's claiming deity. He's claiming to be identical with Yahweh, the God of Israel. And so they, they understood that. You may say, well, I don't really get it, but they got it because they immediately picked up stones to stone him and uh, for blasphemy. But Jesus says later in John 10, Verse 30 says, I and my Father are one. This is that unity in the Godhead. And then in John 14, Jesus said, And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper. Now, this is the night before he went to the cross. He's going to go to the cross. The next day he's going to be crucified. This would be Friday, and on Sunday he is going to be resurrected. And then 40 days later, he will ascend to heaven. And so he is telling all of this to his disciples. And he says, I will pray that uh, God will send another helper. But the, the Greek word translated another uh, means another of the same kind. There are two different words in Greek for another. One is heteros, where we talk about someone who is heterosexual. There's another of a diff two different kinds of humans, male and female. And uh, hom homos, which is uh, the same, another of the same kind. That's what you have here. He's saying he's going to send another helper. He was a... The paraclete, word parakletos applied to him, but it also would apply to uh, Jesus. I mean, excuse me, to the Holy Spirit. It would apply to the Holy Spirit. He would be another helper of the same kind. That is, he also is fully divine. And he is then identified in verse 17 as the spirit of truth because it's the role of the Holy Spirit to reveal truth through the writers of Scripture so that we can know, uh, truly know God's uh, revelation, And then he goes on to say, uh, he's the one the world cannot receive. Why? Because you have to trust in Christ as Savior before you receive the Holy Spirit. And he says, because it, that is the world, neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you. And future tense, he will be in you. So he's predicting what will happen after the beginning of the church, 50 days later, that the Holy Spirit would indwell believers. Now, when God the Holy Spirit indwells believers, uh, you can't get any more of him. At the instant of salvation, God the Holy Spirit indwells every believer for the purpose of making our body, the Scripture says, a temple that is a dwelling place for God the Father and God the Son. And you have passages, Ephesians 4, 8, 9, talk about uh, the Father is in you all. And the Son in John 14 says, I in you and you in me. So God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit indwell every single believer. And so this is what sets apart Christians in this age we call the church age since the time, uh, since the time of the cross. So 
the Holy Spirit is fully divine, just as Christ is fully divine, eternal, omnipotent, omniscient, all of the attributes of deity apply equally to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that is the Trinity. Now, 1 Peter 1, 2 also speaks of this role distinction. We are elect or the choice ones according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in this by the, or by the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus. So the Father is the planner or architect of the plan of salvation. The Son is the one who carries out the work of salvation on the cross. And the Holy Spirit is the one who reveals the plan. And in this church age, he's the one who works in the believer for spiritual growth. Now, to understand the Trinity, this is really based on a on a, a chart that's been used for generations. You have God. Uh, this is a, going to be a depiction of how God exists. And so this uh, symbol here in the center represents the essence of deity. And it is expressed through three, in three distinct persons. We have to be careful. There was an early heresy in the church that was called modalism that in the Old Testament that, that, that God appeared as the Father at the time of the incarnation. He appeared as Jesus, and then after that he appears as the Spirit. You, you have three, you, don't, you have one essence and really one person who just changes his mask. But the Trinity teaches we have one God who is exists also as three persons. So God is the Father, and God is the Holy Spirit, and God is the Son, but the Son is not the Father, and the Son is not the Holy Spirit, and the Father is not the Holy Spirit. So you have this whole issue of three in one, and that is the doctrine of the Trinity. We can never fully comprehend what that means because it is beyond our finite minds to comprehend it. We can comprehend that that this is true, but we cannot comprehend it exhaustively. But we do know from various things that I've explained in the past that this answers some of the fundamental problems that philosophers have have wrestled with apart from Scripture uh, throughout the centuries, and that's called the problem of the one and the many, the problem of unity and diversity. And so one kind of a simple explanation is that of that uh, is I, I was reading something Arnold Fruchtenbaum wrote, a transcript, and he told a joke, and this is based on that joke. He said, and, and I'm, so I'm putting it this way, we have one God, and when he sings, he sings in three-part harmony. Now just think about that. That shows the unity, but there are three persons. So when we look at that passage in 1 Peter 1, 2, that says that we are choice ones according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctification of the Spirit, that's what we're focusing on right now. The, word, the Greek word translated sanctification is the word hagiasmas, which is based on the root word hagias, which gets its meaning really from the Old Testament word kadash. Now, the reason I emphasize that is most people think that this word, which is often translated holy or holiness, means morally pure or morally perfect. 
But there are forms of this word, the male participle, the feminine participle, were used to describe the uh, cultic prostitutes in the fertility religions. Now, the cultic prostitutes in Baalism and uh, in various other mystery religions were not moral. So that's not the core meaning of this word. The core meaning is to be set apart to the service of a deity. See, the cultic prostitutes are set apart to the service of their deity. We're set apart to the service of God. At the instant of our salvation, we are positionally set apart to the service of God. But our spiritual growth, our spiritual life is the is the way in which we grow so that we can become serviceable to God. So that is our growth, our spiritual life. So when we talk about the experience of our sanctification, what we're really talking about is the experience of our spiritual growth and our spiritual maturity so that we are setting, being set apart to the service of God in the way we live our lives. Now, last week I said that when we start, we start with the issue of salvation, recognizing that we're all sinners, there's none righteous, no, not one, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and that we were born dead in our trespasses and sins. But God solved the problem of our spiritual death. He loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And then skip down to the bottom verse. The issue is what we believe. And the issue in Christianity is believing in Christ. Over 95 times in the Gospel of John, John says, believe, and then the object is always in the Lord Jesus Christ. Every single time, he never says, truly believe, He never says genuinely believe. He never says sincerely believe. He never says believe and commit. Believe does not mean commit. That's how it's often expressed today, but that's wrong. Believe means to trust in something, to believe that something is true, to rely upon it. And so the issue is not repenting of our sins, because if that's true, then no one can get saved from the gospel of John. Because the Gospel of John has believed over 95 times, and not once does he use, his, use the word repent or a synonym for repent. Because sin isn't the issue because Christ died on the cross. He paid the penalty for our sins, and so we are to trust in him. Those who do not believe are condemned already because we're born dead in our trespasses and sins. And he goes on to say, because he has not believed. Belief is what gets us new life in Christ. We're regenerated, the Bible says. It is belief at that instant that God credits to us, he imputes to us, he gives us the righteousness of Christ so that we're clothed legally in the righteousness of Christ and Christ declares us to be justified. God declares us to be justified before his uh, throne of righteousness. That's what is historically known as the doctrine of justification by faith alone, which was recovered during the time of the Protestant Reformation. So the issue is as simple as Acts 16.31 puts it, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ 
and you will be saved. So we're looking at this in terms of the eternal realities in the chart and the temporal realities, and in what we have looked at so far, these various ministries of God the Holy Spirit today, and we're still looking at that last one on the filling. So we've looked at what the Bible teaches about the filling by the Holy Spirit. So after we trust in Christ, we are placed in Christ legally. This is our position, our legal position. We are baptized by the Holy Spirit. We're identified, Paul says in, in, in Romans 6, 3 through 6, we're identified in the death, the burial, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we are placed in him by the Holy Spirit. Christ uses the Holy Spirit to, uh, uh, to identify us with himself. Now, I have a little object lesson. I'm going to try to explain this a little more because of the questions I get. Now, if I fill this cup with water, when I use the phrase with water in English, it could be means or it could be content. In the Greek, content, the water, is what's in the glass. The water would be used in a genitive case. We don't have a genitive case in these terms, baptized by means of the Spirit or filled by means of the Spirit. By means of expresses what God or what Christ uses to fill the glass with something. The something in this case is water. The means or the instrument I'm using to fill the glass with water is what? It's the pitcher. See, the pitcher is analogous to the Holy Spirit. In this illustration, I would be analogous to either God the Father or God the Son. Christ uses the Holy Spirit as his instrument to baptize us into his body to identify us with his death, burial, and resurrection. When it comes to filling, and we are to be filled by the Spirit, we're not getting more of the Spirit because we're already indwelt by the Spirit at salvation, but we are going to be filled with something. That's the content, but the means is still the Holy Spirit. It's the picture. So the Holy Spirit is will fill us with something, and the content is the Word of God. So if you keep that, I'm going to try not to spill that. If you keep that in mind, let's go through these, these passages. We're baptized by the Spirit, which identifies us with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. But in terms of our experience, our day-to-day experience, our walk with the Lord, we are to be filled by means of the Spirit. That's a command to every believer. Be filled. Now, if we're automatically baptized by the Spirit. We're never commanded to be baptized by the Spirit. We're never commanded commanded to be indwelt by the Spirit. We're never commanded to be sealed by the Spirit. Those are all automatically done by God the Father at the instant of salvation, using the Spirit to seal us and to indwell us and to baptize us. Christ baptizes us by, by means of the Holy Spirit. We have two different commands that we find in the New Testament. Ephesians 5.18, we looked at last time that we are to be filled by the Spirit. 
And in Galatians 5.16, which we're going, going to look at in a minute, we are to walk by the Holy Spirit. Now, the difference between those two, now I'm going to see smoke coming out of some ears because we're going to talk about grammar again, is that the command to be filled by the Spirit is a passive. We receive it. We allow it to happen to us. We're passive. We don't actively fill ourselves. The Holy Spirit is used by God to do that. But walking by the Spirit is a present active imperative, and that means that we are to make a decision moment by moment to walk by the Spirit. That's our job is to make that decision to do that, but we don't, active, we don't fill ourselves, but we are to allow ourselves to be filled by the Spirit. So we walk by the Spirit. Now, the other term, the one I'm going to start with, is what we find in John 15. Now, I've gone through these in other lessons in detail, so I'm not really going to look at every verse at this opening section, but I just want to look at this primary command. Remember, Jesus is talking to his disciples. It is the night before he goes to the cross. He's had the Last Supper. He's had the Seder meal with his, uh, with his disciples. Now they are walking from the upper room down the Kidron Valley to the Garden of Gethsemane, where later on he will be arrested and then taken to his trials and then to the cross. So now he is teaching them about the spiritual life that will come into effect after the resurrection and ascension. So he talks about the coming that he will send the uh, that God the Father will send the Holy Spirit in John chapter 14 and that we will be indwelt by the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And then he comes to John 15 and he identifies himself. He's going to use the analogy of a grapevine and he says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. So what he's saying is he's talking about a vineyard. He's the vine, that's the analogy, and the father is the one who owns the vineyard and he's the one who's dressing and taking care of the vine. And then Jesus says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, and the King James translates it, he takes away, but that's incorrect. The word there in the Greek is iro, and it means to lift up. Now, one of the men who came through seminary a couple of years after me has uh, and went on to get his doctorate, and he's written several books and technical articles on this, was uh, a man who had gotten his master's degree in viticulture, from Texas A&M, and viticulture is the production of vines and vineyards and production of wine. And so he goes back and looks at all of the ancient uh, records that we have of how the, the farmers treated and took care of their vines to increase production in the first century. And he quotes all of those original sources. And what they would do is if you didn't have, you had new growth and it didn't produce uh, anything this year, what they would do is they would come in and they would tie up or prop up those newer uh, branches that had not yet produced fruit so they would be, get more sunlight and more air, and then the next year they would begin to produce fruit. So this isn't taking away. That implies that somehow God's removing them. No, this is lifting them up so that there will be more production later on. 
What we see here is what's necessary to produce fruit, more fruit, or much fruit as Jesus develops this story. And the point, one point I always make is if you've ever tried to grow anything, I've, I've grown tomatoes, I've never tried to grow grapes, but that a lot of growth has to happen before there's any fruit production. A lot of people want to come along and say, well, I'm looking at somebody and I don't see any fruit production there. Well, they probably, they're not growing, either they're not growing or they haven't grown very much, but in biblical terms, it takes time to produce fruit. Growth is not fruit. I've had tomato plants that have had excessive growth and not produced any fruit for not just the 90 days it's supposed to be, but maybe maybe 120 or 130 days before they ever started produce. But they have luxuriant growth, but no fruit. Fruit comes after a while. So don't confuse fruit with growth. You don't see any growth or you don't see any fruit. You think, oh, well, then maybe they're not saved, which is totally erroneous. So what Jesus says is every branch in me that does, that does not bear fruit, he lifts up. And every branch that, branch that bears fruit, he prunes. That's as God is positively training and disciplining us in our life to be more productive in time. He prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. And then he says to the disciples, you are already clean. And he defines that in John 13. You are already believers. You are positionally clean. You've trusted in me as Messiah. You are saved. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. And then he gives the command. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself. Now, some people think that abide means to trust. It's not. He's already said you are already clean. If abiding has something to do with believing, then it's, they're already believers. Abiding is what believers are supposed to do. It means to stay in a place, to remain there. So he is saying, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless, here's the condition, you can't bear fruit unless you abide in Christ. And so abiding in him is a picture of fellowship, a picture of intimacy, a picture of dependence. And so uh, one of the ways I've illustrated this is that the Christian life is like living in a house. And you're in the family. You're in the family of God, and you're living in the house, and those that are in the house are having a fellowship together. There's intimacy in the house. But then you break the rules of the house, you disobey your parents, and you get kicked out the front door. Now you're no longer abiding. You're no longer in fellowship. You're no longer walking in fellowship. You're no longer enjoying that intimacy with God because you've been kicked out the front door. You haven't lost your salvation. You've just been disobedient. So the way to get back in is you admit your sin and God forgives you of that sin and cleanses you of all unrighteousness. And then you come back in the door. This is what Jesus was talking about in Revelation 3.21, not salvation. Behold, I stand at the door and knock isn't talking about let me in so I can save you. It's talking about let me in. You've kicked me out, and I want to be back in as part of the fellowship so that you have a real functional church. So, so that's what's going on here. Christ is saying we need to abide in him. That means it's not about getting in fellowship. It's about staying in fellowship. 
It's about walking by the Spirit, which is what Paul says in Galatians 5.16. Now, what I want you to notice is that this word minnow is, a pre, is an aorist imperative. Now, in Greek, that basically means this is a priority. It's, it would be like a drill sergeant barking an order you have to respond to instantly. Okay, that's the force of an aorist imperative. Over here we have walk, and it's the same language. It's that preposition in plus the dative of pneuma, walk by means of the spirit. And here it's a present imperative. Now the difference between a present imperative and an aorist imperative, an aorist imperative is, is do this right now, make it a priority, a present imperative says this is to be your normal standard operating procedure. This is how you should live every day. It's, it's, and, and sometimes a word can be used as a present imperative because it's just emphasizing do this all the time. This is the, your normal characteristic way of life. And then if somebody's not doing it, it might change to an aorist imperative. Do it now. This, make this a priority because you're not. You're not doing it at all. So walk by means of the Spirit and you will not, and literally it means you will not bring to completion the lust of the flesh. The flesh is our sinful nature, our sinful desires. And it, the word translated not is really two negatives in Greek. In English, two negatives cancel each other and it's a positive. But in Greek, two negatives uh, just have a double emphasis on not. And it means it's impossible to do something. Now, some people say, well... Golly, if I'm walking by the Spirit, then how can I possibly sin? Because it says I can't fulfill the lust of the flesh. It's like this. And this is one of those things where I think the Lord gave me this illustration as I was going to a church in Poughkeepsie, New York, to speak on the spiritual life. And I, the pastor was coming to pick me up, and we're running a little late, and I'm going down the elevator the elevator doors opened, but I couldn't get out of the elevator. There were about 150 septa and octogenarians with their walkers hobbling along the way in front of me going to a meeting. And I'm looking at them, and they all have their little walkers, and they're walking by means of their walker, okay? Now, you have to think about that when you're using a walker and pay attention and concentrate because you don't want to trip and you don't want to fall. If you take your eyes off of the walker, then what's going to happen? The default position is to fall. So as long as you're walking, that means you're actively depending on God the Holy Spirit. But if you take the, your eyes off of him, then the default position is now you're going to sin. Now you're going to fall. So that's what Paul is saying. He's saying walk by the Spirit and you'll not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Now, the verses that come after that are talking about uh, this constant battle that we have as Christians between the desire, the sinful de desires of our sin nature versus doing what the Word of God says and walking by the Spirit. And so there's a list then of various sins that just represent. You see those things in your life? Well, that means you're living by your sin nature, and you need to confess sin and get back in fellowship and walk by the Spirit. But then it produces something. It produces, let me skip past this a minute because I've already taught that. Uh, it produces the fruit of the Spirit. Now, what did John say? Jesus say in John, the necessary condition to produce fruit is to what? 
abide in Christ. In Galatians, what we read is that we are to walk by the Spirit. And then in verses 21 to 23, it's going to talk about the fruit of the Spirit. I'll get back to that. But how does filling of the Spirit fit? Because when we're walking by the Spirit, okay, then as we're walking by the Spirit, then the Holy Spirit is able to fill us with the Word of God. And then when we're being filled, then fruit production can occur. Maturity, spiritual growth can occur. But if we stop walking by the Spirit, there won't be that spiritual growth or that fruit production. So we are passive here. An active voice imperative means you need to do this. You walk. You determine step by step your life. But a passive means simply that you want to let something happen. So the primary issue is you abide in Christ, active voice. You walk by the Spirit. Those are basically the same things. And then the result is you let the Holy Spirit fill you with the Word of God. And we saw that last time when we saw the results of being filled by the Spirit in Ephesians five nineteen to 21, that this is speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Verse 20, giving thanks to God for all things. And verse 21, submitting to one another. In Colossians 3.16, the command was to let the word of Christ dwell in you. Notice both are passive ideas. The active idea is to walk by the Spirit, to abide in Christ. The passive is when we're doing that, then we're letting the Holy Spirit fill us with God's word. And I use this chart to show that the results of being filled by the Spirit are the same as the results of letting the word of Christ richly dwell within us. And that is the basis then of how the Holy Spirit is able to uh, produce fruit. I didn't get that I didn't get that fruit passage put in there. In Galatians five five twenty one we read excuse me five twenty two but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So we have these different characteristics. Now, I want you to look at your Bible and tell me whether the word fruit is singular or plural. It doesn't say fruits of the Spirit, but look at that. It lists... it. it it, it lists love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You've got nine different things there. Why isn't it fruits of the Spirit? What's being produced is one thing, the character of Christ. And the character of Christ has different facets. And that's what those are. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, those are the facets, the different facets of the character of Christ. Christ, Scripture says, is being formed in us. It's the character of Christ. That's the fruit of the Spirit. And that comes when we are abiding in Christ, walking by the Spirit, and then he fills us with his word, and as we apply it, there is spiritual growth. So 
back to our chart here that we are identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection by the baptism by the Holy Spirit. And then when we are abiding in Christ and walking by the Spirit, we're filled by the Spirit. We're walking in the light is another way Paul describes it. We're walking in the light. That's the experience on the right because we're sons of light. That's on the left side. But we sin. Every believer sins. And when we sin, we're no longer walking in the light. We're no longer walking by the Spirit. We're now walking in darkness. We're letting the sin nature influence our life and dominate our thinking. And so we're in what the Bible calls carnality. And when we confess sin, then we are restored to fellowship to resume our walk in the light and our walk by the Holy Spirit. Jesus said in John 10.10 that he did not come like a thief to steal and to destroy, but he came to give life, to give life, that they may have it more abundantly. It's a free gift that we have to accept by trusting in Christ. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Now, either he is the most arrogant human being in all of history, by saying, I am the only way to God, or he's telling the truth. There's, those are the only two options. Some people say, well, Jesus was really a good man. He was a good teacher. He was a good religious teacher. He was a moral man. But good men, moral men, nice men, good teachers do not claim to be something that they are not, and especially something as significant as being the only way to God. So Jesus is either telling the truth And there's nothing in his life that substantiates that. He's either telling, I mean, excuse me, he's either telling a lie, in which case there's nothing in his life that substantiates that, or he's telling the truth, in which case he is God. He is the only way to God, and he is the absolute truth. And then in John 11, 25, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. Well, if he's not telling the truth, there have been millions, hundreds of millions who have trusted in Christ as Savior, expecting to have eternal life, and they've been deceived. So the only options with Jesus is he's the greatest deceiver and the greatest con artist of all of history, or he is exactly who he claimed to be, is the eternal God of heaven who entered into human history to die for our sins that we may have eternal life. And Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved. It's a free gift. That's what grace is. You don't earn grace. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Faith is the means. Anybody can believe. Everybody believes something. Even if you're a rationalist, you believe your human reason is capable of understanding everything, ultimate truth. Everybody everybody knows on the basis of faith, whether you're an empiricist or a rationalist or a mystic, you're still basing it on faith. Faith in Christ, the object of faith, is what matters. He's the one who died for our sins. So we are saved through faith, not by anything that we have done, not by ourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So once we have that life, two important questions. How do I have eternal life. How am I going to know that when I die, I go to heaven? 
And the scripture answer is you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. But the next question is, well, now that I have trusted in Christ, what do I do? How do I live? What's next? And that's what I talked about this morning. We are to walk by the Spirit. We are walk according to the new high position that has been given us. We're to walk in truth. We're to walk in love. All of those describe this new Christian life. And it's all done by dependence on the Holy Spirit. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study this morning and to reflect upon your word, to understand that the great, the great gift that we've given with our salvation is the Holy Spirit. He indwells us, and he is the one who illuminates our thinking. We are filled by him as we walk with him and abide in Christ. And it is God the Holy Spirit who ultimately teaches us and enables us to understand your word, and to he is the one who stores it in our soul and enables us to apply it, bringing it to mind at the appropriate times. Father, we pray that if there's anyone online that's listening this morning or listening at some later time or anyone here that has never trusted Christ as Savior, that the Holy Spirit would just make that clear, that there is a need to trust in Christ. We cannot save ourselves. Our good works are not good enough, never can be good enough. But the only way in which we can please you is to trust in Christ. And then we are given his perfect righteousness and declared righteous because of his righteousness and his work on the cross. We pray that that would be made very clear to each one of us and those of us who are saved can come to a greater understanding and appreciation of all that was done for us in our salvation and what has been given to us in, in, by the Holy Spirit and the ministries of the Holy Spirit to enable us to grow and to mature in, as believers and to understand your word. And so, Father, we just thank you for your word and your grace and your so great salvation. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.